Well, good morning. So here are some phrases that I think need to die when people are hurting around us. We just need to be done saying these things when people are hurting. God will never give you more than you can handle. Count it all joy. God's got a plan. Be grateful. At least it's not worse. God is good all the time. When God shuts a door, he opens a window. It all happens for a reason. Let go and let God. See, what's interesting is some of those statements have rings of truth in them. But just because it's true doesn't mean it's helpful in the moment, especially when people are hurting. When others are going through trials around us, when other people are really hurting, it's really easy to offer quick advice that often just adds insult to injury. And we're going to see in the chapters we're looking at in Job today, Job 4 to 31, we're going to see what not to do when helping other people through suffering. So I've entitled it Bad Advice. So here's what you shouldn't say. And so just to recap, if you haven't been with us, Job 1 and 2, this guy Job, who is an incredible man of God, loses all of his wealth, his health, and yet he didn't curse God. In fact, he praised God. And last week we saw that his three friends came and just sat with him. And they should have just not opened their mouth, as we're about to see. Because they give him some pretty bad advice. And if I was just to summarize it in a phrase, it'd be this. You're being punished, Job. You're being punished. And so I want to show you this. And I think a good microcosm of it is the first friend that speaks in chapter 4, Eliphaz, in his first speech in Job 4, 7 and 8. And I'll have all these scriptures up here because I'm going to be going all over the place. So if you want to try to follow along in your Bible... Go for it. It's going to be tough, though. So just know it's all up here. So Job 4, 7, and 8 says, Consider, this is Eliphaz talking to Job, Consider who has perished when he was innocent. Where have the honest been destroyed? In my experience, those who plow injustice and those who sow trouble reap the same. So that is the theme throughout all the friends' speeches, essentially saying, Job, you're being punished. And this is what's known as the retributive justice principle. And here's what that means. Retributive justice principle says if bad things are happening, you must have done something bad to deserve it. And the worse it is for you, the worse your sin was. The problem is that Eliphaz and these other friends have some theology that's off. See, bad things happen to everybody. And it's not necessarily because you did something wrong. And the degree of bad isn't determined by the degree of your sin necessarily either. So here's the deal. In the end, justice will be served fairly. Jesus will come back and make everything right. But everything is not fair now. And so Job's friends essentially just keep pointing their finger at Job and the hard thing is, a lot of what Job's friends say isn't wrong. 
It's just misapplied to Job. And we know that because these friends are called out by God in Job 42.7. So we're going to see in a, in a couple weeks, God breaks in and speaks. And he says, Job 42.7, After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So we know. For all of these chapters, you're going to hear a lot of, if you read through this, you would nod along with a lot of it. And if you just had a highlighter and you were to highlight the things that you thought were good and right and true, you would highlight a lot. But we learn that their advice to Job in this situation is not good. And God was angry at him for it. So there's these cycles of speeches. Job's three friends um, speak and there's, they, they, they each speak three times, except for the last, the last cycle, the last friend just doesn't say anything else because I think he's maybe coming around realizing, oh, this isn't that helpful. That's me giving the benefit of the doubt. Maybe not. But uh, anyway, Eliphaz's first speech, I just gave you a synopsis of that. We saw that in Job 4, 7, and 8. He's saying, you're being punished. Now Bildad's first. And this is kind of like, you know, kind of like a symphony or, or an orchestra here. You got you know, Beethoven's first, and here's Bildad's first, and so uh, Job 8, 5, and 6, but if you earnestly seek God and ask the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, then he will move even now on your behalf and restore the home where your righteousness dwells. So Bildad is saying, hey, repent, just repent to God and he'll make everything right again. You're being punished. Zophar's first, the third friend, Job 11, 4 and 5. He said, you have said my teaching is sound and I am pure in your sight. But if only God would speak and open his lips against you. Zophar now is going, Job, God knows your sin. Quit denying it. Now Eliphaz breaks back in with his second speech. And Job 15, 1 to 6, we get a taste of that. He says, then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, Does a wise man answer with empty counsel or fill himself with hot, the hot east wind? Should he argue with useless talk or with words that serve no good purpose? But you even undermine the fear of God and hinder meditation before him. Your iniquity teaches you what to say and you choose the language of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not I. Your own lips testify against you. So now it's like he's going, Job, you're self-deceived. You've tricked yourself into thinking that you're innocent here. Then Bildad's second speech, Job 18, 1-5. Then Bildad, the Shuhite, replied, How long until you stop talking? Show some sense and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as cattle, as stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, should the earth be abandoned on your account or a rock be removed from its place? Yes, the light of the wicked is extinguished. The flame of his fire does not glow. Bildad's just saying to him, you're wrong, Job. You're not innocent. You're wrong. Then Zophar's second speech, Job 20, 12 to 14 Though evil tastes sweet in his mouth and he conceals it under his tongue, though he cherishes it and will not let it go but keeps it in his mouth, yet the food in his stomach turns into cobra's venom inside him. <laughs> Zophar saying, 
Job, you can't hide. You can't hide your sin. Quit denying that you sinned. This is why you're in this predicament, Job. So just stop it because it's going to eat you alive. Like cobra's venom inside of you. It's going to kill you. So just repent of it already. You can't hide from God. And then Eliphaz breaks back in with his third speech. And Job 22, 5 through 9 is a snapshot of that. He says, isn't your wickedness abundant and aren't your iniquities endless? For you took collateral from your brothers without cause, stripping off their clothes and leaving them naked. You gave no water to the thirsty and withheld food from the famished while the land belonged to a powerful man and an influential man lived on it. You sent widows away empty-handed and the strength of the fatherless was crushed. So Eliphaz goes to a whole different level here and starts accusing Job falsely of things that he did. None of these things are founded. Job did not do any of those things. So he just starts making it up, and this is what we do, right? We start to spin stories, and if we're really convinced, no, this guy's guilty, then, then we start just making things up and adding to it, and that's what Eliphaz does. Then Bildad, in chapter 25, his third speech, which ends these friends' speeches, says this, Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, Dominion and dread belong to him. The one who establishes harmony in his heights Can his troops be numbered? Does his light not shine on everyone? How can a human be justified before God? How can one born of woman be pure? If even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less a human who is a maggot, a son of man who is a worm? So Bildad goes after the fact that all are sinful. And Job Never denies that he is a sinful man. He's just saying, it's not a result of my sin that I'm being punished right now. And so he, but Bildad goes even farther. He, he goes past what is good and right and calls humans maggots and worms. Well, God doesn't create junk. God doesn't create maggots and worms. I mean, he does, but he doesn't make us maggots and worms and call us that. No, he made us in his image. So we have infinite value. So Bildad's got it wrong. And Job's response is basically this, over and over, because he responds after every speech, and he essentially says every time, no, I'm innocent, you guys. And his first response says it all. Job 6, 24. Teach me and I will be silent. Help me understand what I did wrong. It's like he's just saying, guys, like, where is it at? Show me my fault here because I, I'm, be, I'm not being punished here for my wrongdoing. Job knows that he's innocent, so he dares them to show him his fault. And of course, they can't find anything. And as we saw, they end up even making stuff up about Job. Now, we're covering chapters 4 to 31 today. And you might be like, whoa, why? Slow down. Why are we going so fast? It's because the same theme is throughout all of these chapters. And I've read through Job many times in my life and often ended up very confused in these chapters. Because I'm like, oh, well, that's kind of true. But then wait, what? Well, Job is countering? Like, what is going on? So you, I wanted to bring some clarity to what's going on and see from a, a, a bigger picture what's happening. So his friends are giving him bad advice, pointing their finger, you're being punished. And Job is responding, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. And as the speeches go on, 
Job, in his speeches, basically just gives up on his friends because they aren't acting like friends. I heard someone say they're more like frenemies, right? They're, they're friends that are really not being there for Job. And so Job basically gives up on them, but he doesn't give up on God, and he turns to God more and more as the speeches go on. And I wanted to show you in these scriptures that Job actually starts longing for Jesus, but he doesn't know it. He's longing for what Jesus provided for us now. So I want to show you this. We're going to get glimpses of Job's longing and how Jesus fulfills that longing. So in Job 16.21, Job says, I wish that someone might argue for a man with God just as anyone would for a friend. Well, what's he want here? He wants an advocate. He wants someone to plead his case for him. Well, 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. See, Job was longing for what we have today. He was longing for an advocate, for someone to plead his case before God. And if you are in Christ, God looks at you and he sees you with Jesus-colored lenses and he doesn't look at you and see your sin. Instead, because of what Jesus did on the cross and him rising from the dead, he sees you as justified, just as if you never sinned. And he sees you, even though you don't deserve it, even though I don't deserve it, and he sees us as forgiven, as free. And so Job longed for that. If I only had an advocate to plead my case before God, well, guess what? We do. We have that in Jesus Christ right now. In Job 17, 15, Job goes, where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? Job was at the end of his rope. He didn't know where to find hope. But the reality for us is that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. See, 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What Job longed for, real hope, we have in Jesus Christ, who is now our living hope, our sure hope. Job was just, he, like, we are 100% sure that we have hope. Job is like, where's my hope at? I need some hope here. We have it through Jesus. Job longs for Jesus in chapter 19, this is kind of the pinnacle of it. Job 19, 25 to 27. And now he's not just longing, he's confident. He says, but I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the end, he will stand on the dust. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him and not as a, at a, as a stranger. My heart longs within me. See, Job is longing for a redeemer, a redeemer 
Verse 25, he says, I know my Redeemer lives. This is foreshadowing, and Job doesn't even know it, but it's a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 25, he says he will stand on the dust. We know that Jesus literally stands on the dust by defeating sin, death, and evil forever. In verse 26 and 27, he said, I will see God in my flesh. My eyes will look at him. It's talking about being in eternity with Christ forever when we will see him face to face. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says it like this. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Redeemed. What Job longed for, a redeemer, we have in Christ. And a redeemer is someone who delivers others at cost. And so we have in Jesus Christ right now a redeemer who delivered us at the cost of his very own life. Our Redeemer, Jesus, lives, and one day he will come and make all things right. So there's just glimpses of how Job is longing for Jesus. So what do we do with all of this? Lots and lots and lots of scripture. Thank you for hanging with me. But what do we do with this? Well, when others are suffering... Don't jump to conclusions. Job's friends jumped to massive conclusions about Job and added insult to injury. He made his suffering even worse. I didn't think Job could suffer anymore after I read chapters 1 and 2, but he does suffer more because his friends, one after the other after the other, over and over and over and over again, just point the finger at him. And drive the nail in harder and harder into Job. So when other people are suffering, don't jump to conclusions. Don't even jump to conclusions in your mind. Don't jump to conclusions about people behind their backs. Don't say to yourself, man, you know, if they'd been more careful, they might not be in the mess they're in. You don't know that. Don't jump to conclusions. Assuming things always makes things worse. When others are suffering, don't jump to conclusions. When others are suffering, be careful with your words. Job 13, 4 and 5, Job says this. He's talking to his friends. You use lies like plaster. You're all worthless healers. If only you would shut up and let that be your wisdom. Choice words he had for his friends. Job tells him, just shut up. You guys are, you guys are worthless healers. And all, all they said just made him feel worse. And he's like, guys, just remember the seven days where you didn't say anything? Let's go back to that. Be very careful with your words. John Piper said this, true theological statements can be false. If you take most of the statements of Job's friends separately, they sound like good theology, but their application is shallow and insensitive. Just because it's true doesn't mean it's helpful right now. Just because it's true doesn't mean it applies to this person or to this situation. 
As James 1.19 says, we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And especially when other people are walking through suffering, we need to be quick to listen to them and very slow to speak. But at some point, you got to say something. So what do you say? You know, I, I, I don't want to just stand up here and go, you just got to be quiet. Because you don't know, at some point, you need to enter in and say something. So when others are suffering, give them hope. Listen to Job. Here's what Job wished his friends would have done. Job 16, 1 to 5. Then Job answered, I've heard many things like the, these. You are all miserable comforters. Is there no end to your empty words? What provokes you that you continue testifying? If you were in my place, I could also talk like you. I could string words together against you and shake my head at you. But look, verse 5, instead, instead, I would encourage you with my mouth. And the consolation from my lips would bring relief. So when others are suffering, give them hope by encouraging them. Bring relief to them. Don't further discourage them or add to their burden. And we do this by giving them hope. And we don't, we, here's how you don't give people hope who are suffering. You don't say trite statements like God's got a plan and be grateful, at least it's not worse. You give them hope by pointing them to hope himself, Jesus Christ. And my, my go-to when people are suffering, if I say anything at all, is Psalm 46, 1 and 2. that says, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And I always talk about it backwards with people. I go, okay, it ends with, therefore, we will not fear. But we're all really afraid. Like, you're going through this hard thing right now, and I'm afraid. You're afraid. We're all afraid. So why should we not be afraid? Go backwards in the verse. Because God is with us. He's a very present help right now in our time of trouble. He is present. He is here with us. And he cares infinitely about us. He is our refuge. He's our strength. So you can give people real hope when they're suffering by saying that he's here. Focus on his presence and focus on his care. God is here and he cares so much about you. I think you limit it to that to start with. But why? Why limit it to that? Here's why. Because you are a living example of God's presence and God's care when you walk alongside someone who is suffering. Because see, you're saying, I'm here. So even if it doesn't feel like God is here, I'm living proof of it. And, and you're essentially saying, God, I care about you. I love you. So even if it doesn't feel like God loves you and cares about you, I'm living proof that he does. See, we start with his presence and we start with his love to give people hope because those aren't empty words because these words have flesh and bone because I'm literally here and I am seeking to care for you and love for you. So when others are suffering, give them hope by assuring them of the presence of God and the love of God. But if you're the one suffering, here's what we learn from these scriptures today. When you're suffering, it's not necessarily because of your sin. 
Some of you really need to hear that today. Some of you perhaps are beating yourself up for some really hard things that are happening in your life or maybe have happened in the past and you just think, man, what did I do? And you're just racking your brain. I, I, I don't think I did anything to deserve that. Perhaps you didn't. And just be free. See, when God is disciplining you because of your sin, you know it. God is not unclear about that. Think about it like this. No good dad, emphasis on good, okay? No good dad disciplines his kid and never tells them why he's disciplining them, right? No kid disciplines them and never tells them the wrong that they did to deserve it. That's horrible parenting. And so God the Father doesn't do that either. So if you're not sure why you're suffering, almost for sure it's not because of your sin. So just let, let that weight fall off your back. Other thing is, when you're suffering, long for Jesus. Long for Jesus. Job 19.27, after he says, I know my Redeemer lives, he says, my heart longs within me. So when you're suffering, let that lead you to hunger and thirst for God like never before. I've had people tell me that they actually find it easier to cling to God when times are hard than when they're good because they really feel their need for Jesus. So really, really utilize that. Trials are tough. We don't, I don't wish them on anyone. We don't want them, right? We don't pray that God would give us trials. But when we have them, utilize them to, to just catalyze a hunger and a thirst for God. I mean, suffering, if nothing else, provides you an opportunity to just recognize your need, your need that you had when things were going well, too. But you really see it because you're just so empty and you just feel like you're at the end of yourself and you, you don't know what to do. And so let that lead you to just run to God and cling to God. And even if, even if you do what Job did in chapter 3, like we saw last week, and you actually see it a lot in these chapters if you go and look at them more, but Job is honest with God, brutally honest with God, and he wrestles with God. I mean, he comes just short of being suicidal. I mean, the guy, is, the guy is raw and real, but he doesn't run away from God. He runs to God. And so when you're suffering long for Jesus, hunger and thirst for Jesus like never before, and I don't... I don't know if I've witnessed someone so steadfastly and authentically cling to Jesus amidst intense suffering like Caitlin Miller. So if, if you can come on up, Caitlin. And I want, you, I want you all to listen very carefully and learn from Caitlin today. She has an incredible story. Um, <clears throat> Pastor Matt invited me to share what it's like to long for Jesus amidst suffering a calling that echoes deeply on my own journey of faith. And so today, I stand before you holding on to faith with a heart that knows a very deep sorrow. A little over a year and a half ago, my youngest boy, Elias, was called to be home with the Lord. He was just 18 months old, and 10 months later, my father also, my father also joined him. Sharing the anguish and the longing for Jesus in the midst of such intense suffering is a journey that's a dark valley, but it's also a testament to the light that shines even there, which is Christ himself. I was reminded of Paul's words 
In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8 through 10, Paul pleaded with the Lord to remove his suffering, yet he found strength in the profound revelation of God's grace that it is sufficient and his power is made perfect in weakness. And like Paul, I pleaded, not for relief from the thorn in my flesh, but for strength to take the next breath in a world that suddenly didn't exist with Elias or my dad anymore. In the throes of my grief, I learned the depths of my need for Jesus. I remember shortly after losing Elias, I prayed for strength to get through each minute, the next hour, the next night, and even the next week. In the immediate wake of Elias's passing, time became a very strange companion. It rushed by in disbelief and dragged on in agony. I remember the 2 a.m. calls I, I get to notify people around me, and I remember grief being so heavy that my body physically ached. My prayers became a lifeline, like breaths. They were shaky and simple, but short pleas for mercy, grace, and strength. And as time passed, Jesus made himself more known in my weakness. Even in moments when his presence felt distant, his love remained a steadfast anchor. I once heard grief described as an ocean by my best friend. It's always there at the edge of your life. Some days, the water's at your feet. It's gentle ripples of memories. And the other days, it's like waves. Sometimes it's manageable, sometimes knocking you down with its sudden ferocity. And then there are tsunamis, the overwhelming surges that seem to threaten my very foundation. Yet even as the waves crashed over me, I wasn't lost in its depths. Jesus was my lighthouse, guiding me back to shore time and time again. James tells us to consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds, because the testing of our faith produces perseverance. And in this trial, I'd be lying if I said my faith didn't waver at times, but it was refined. It is sustained by the strength of the one who sustains, who sustains us. Though my heart was marred by loss, it enveloped in love by a good shepherd who walks by me in my pain and carries me through the valley of my shadows. It is in this trial where I grasp the depth of the capacity to love because of my depth to feel loss. I wouldn't feel loss so profoundly if I didn't also love so deeply. The profound sorrow I feel and the love I express are in it, but mere shadows of Christ's great sacrifice. A reminder that his crucifixion, though moments of imaginable pain, is also an ultimate love, act of love. In the agony of loss that brought me to this point of my faith, it is not the agony of loss that brought me to this point of my faith, though, but rather Jesus' unwavering presence through it all. He carried me through waging waters. He enveloped me in his love, and the community of believers were his hands and feet when my world was shattered. They showed up as glimpses of hope and love even when waves crashed over me. My faith and grief coexist, neither nullifying each other but deepening my reliance on God's grace. My grace isn't silenced by my belief. My grief isn't silenced by my belief the same way that it's not weakened by funerals because I'm not the one who sustains it. Christ is. In my sorrows, I lack strength to endure even the next heartbeat of life. I found refuge and experienced a sacred duty to lay every broken piece, every tear-stained moment at Jesus' feet, trusting in his love. His grace and his sovereignty in the tensions between faith and grief, I found my truest form of worship, tears that stained the earth and prayers that ascended to heaven. I learned that I do not move on from grief, but I move with it, and Christ also moves with me.
Thank you, Caitlin. See, the Lord really is near to the brokenhearted, and he really does save the crushed in spirit. And so, come to Jesus. If you're weary, if you're burdened, if you come to him, you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you for the incredible, the incredible example of Caitlin and I just pray, I just pray that you would give us all the grace and the strength to grieve well as she has and is. And we know that it's a process. And so I just pray that we would continue to rally around her and be there for her. I pray for those in here who are suffering. I pray that they would know that you love them more than they can imagine. And I pray that they would cling to you, Jesus. That they, they would choose, as we just sang, to, to say it is well, even though they don't feel well, even though they, they, they feel so brokenhearted. They would know that it's well because you are there. And you, you actually care. And so whatever happens today or tomorrow, give us the strength, Jesus, to not just say we love you, but to actually show it, to cling to you, to praise you, to just say whatever comes my way, whatever comes my way, I'm going to praise you, Jesus, because you're worth it. We thank you that you are so worthy and worth it, God. In your name we pray. Amen. May you stand and sing this last song with us. We're creation suddenly articulate. With a thousand tongues to lift one cry Then from north to south 